Please take your scripture and turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 tonight. Uh, We'll be looking together at verses 13 uh, through 17. Uh, We are still uh, with John, uh, the baptizer, uh, in the wilderness of Judea uh, by the Jordan. And uh, we have seen uh, the crowds uh, coming to him. Uh, Last time we saw uh, Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him. Uh, The first, no doubt, uh, John was thrilled with as the crowds came. Uh, As the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, he was somewhat angered uh, because they came without repentance in their heart. And then we find at the end of chapter 3 that someone else comes for baptism. And a little shocking what happens. Here. And so, this is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 3, uh, at verse 13. Let's read together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, that's John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the Word of God. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, scene in the Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that all uh, Scripture is breathed out by you and is profitable. And as we travel through the the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit among us even today, uh, that you would help us, Lord, to know the truth and that the truth uh, would set us free. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, people uh, love uh, science fiction movies. I don't know if you folks love science fiction movies, but in general, uh, we live in a culture that loves science fiction movies. Uh, I have in my uh, DVD collection the 1951 movie, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Anyone ever watch that movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still? Uh, Oh, I saw a hand there in the back, even though I didn't ask, so thank you. Yes, I see that hand. Uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, 1951. How about 1956, Invasion of the Body Snatchers? That's not for kids. That's not for kids. There's Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977. And then in 1991, there began a series of movies with this title, uh, The Arrival. Uh, 1991, that's a science fiction horror. I wouldn't encourage you to watch that one. Uh, 1996, also science fiction horror uh, starring Charlie Sheen called The Arrival. And then 2016, another movie called uh, Arrival. And um, that one was, you know, um, uh, spacecraft appearing all over the world, all over uh, landing, you know, hovering over many nations of the Earth. And uh, in this movie, apparently, this is what happened. Scientists research uh, the complex written language of the aliens, consisting of palindromic phrases written with circular symbols and share the results 
with other nations. They're trying to figure out uh, what it is uh, that these aliens from another planet who've arrived uh, are saying to us. This is really fascinating because, uh, as you know, our culture seems to be consumed with the thought and the hope, right, of life arriving from another planet, from beyond us. And uh, the thought that something out there, someone out there is more powerful, someone out there is more wise, someone out there is more peaceful. And if they would only arrive and, um, and share a message with the world. I find that fascinating. When, of course, all along, uh, someone more wise, more powerful, more peaceful uh, arrived many, many years ago. Then Jesus came. All four of the Gospels record uh, the story of the baptism of Jesus that itself should tell us that this is an important scene uh, in the Scripture. Uh, Luke will add that uh, Jesus was praying as the Holy Spirit descended upon him. John will mention in his Gospel that what happens here will assure him that Jesus is the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. The time is about 26 A.D. King Herod died. Herod the Great died around 4 B.C. We know from secular history. Luke 3 tells us Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. And so that's where we kind of get the 26 A.D. Uh, John the baptizer, uh, we are told in the Gospel of John, is in Bethany beyond the Jordan. No one knows where that particular Bethany is, somewhere around the Jordan River. And uh, we've heard that he's calling upon people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many have come, as we found out, many have come with hearts of repentance, bearing fruit, keeping with repentance, asking how they can indeed bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Last time we saw those, some were looking to uh, receive this sign, but their heart was very far from God. They wanted to be in on this, uh, on this spiritual ceremony, uh, but their hearts were far from God, and they received a very strong uh, warning and rebuke from John, who then would go on to speak about wheat and chaff, and that the sovereign God can take stones and make children of Abraham, which of course is exactly what he does with you and I, changing our heart of stone into hearts of flesh. And John had said, well, the, he's going to gather his wheat into his barn, a wonderful picture of, of all those who, who belong to Christ and their sins already been judged or will be judged at the cross and they're gathered as wheat into the barn. But unless you are in Christ and gathered in as wheat, uh, there is yet a judgment to come, says John. And so that's a message for the world, that there's one coming who will gather his wheat into the barn, that's Jesus and then there is a judgment for all those who reject him and who have no sense of need of repentance or forgiveness at all. And, uh, and then, the Bible says, then Jesus came. So first of all here, we have, a, we have really a shocking candidate for baptism. Uh, notice what the Bible says, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, don't know exactly where, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So then Jesus came. Uh, the word came there means arrived or made his public appearance. 
It's the same word that's used in chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came or arrived preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Now, the first thing we should note here is the contrast between those coming to John for baptism. Well, it's not have been easy to be John the baptizer. First, he has these crowds coming uh, with hearts of repentance, wanting to be baptized. Then he has to deal with the uh, religious leaders of the day who uh, were, were clearly hypocrites. They did not have, uh, they wanted the outward show, but did not have any kind of inward sense of repentance toward God. And then Jesus comes. Uh, and whereas John was clearly uh, passionate, you'll remember, to dissuade the Pharisees and Sadducees, seen through their hypocrisy, here John is shocked by the appearance of Jesus seeking baptism. Now, it's, uh, it's worth our asking, uh, what do we know about Jesus thus far in the Gospel of Matthew? You have to put yourself back in the, in the Gospel story. Of course, we've read through all of Matthew. We know where it goes. We know where it ends. But what do we know about Jesus here? And what did John the Baptist, in fact, know about Jesus? Well, we've seen so far already in the Gospel of Matthew that he is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. We know he's born king. We know he's worshipped as a king. We know he's hated as the king and persecuted. Uh, we know that his kingdom is at hand. We know that the way is being prepared for him by his herald, John the Baptizer. But what did John the Baptizer actually know of Jesus. Well, here it's important to remember, of course, that, that John would have known Jesus personally. You remember that uh, their mothers uh, were cousins, right? Elizabeth, John's mother, and Mary, mother of Jesus, we're told in the scripture, were cousins. And so that makes uh, John the Baptist and Jesus second uh, cousins. Um, in fact, uh, John's mother, Elizabeth, in Luke 1.43, uh, will hear her speak of how she knew that Jesus was the Lord. She, she knows that the, uh, the one that will be born to marry her cousin, uh, she refers to him as my Lord. So John grew up in Elizabeth's house, son of Elizabeth, and surely he would have heard stories about his second cousin, Jesus. Um, I don't know how well you know your cousins. Um, we tend to only know our cousins who are... Um, you know, famous for good things, uh, maybe, right? I think I've already told you about our cousin who was in the Olympics. I've probably told you several times, um, you know, because that's kind of a famous thing to have a cousin who was in the Olympics. Uh, we've got another famous cousin, a cousin who finds, uh, who finds sites to build new Tim Hortons donut shops. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty famous, right? So we know this cousin. Um, we, we've heard of what he, of what he, of what he does. Uh, you tend to know something about famous cousins. Surely John would have spent time with his aunt and uncle, Mary and Joseph. He would have spent time with Jesus. He must, have, uh, he must have heard about what the angels had said of this particular cousin. He would have had a good idea of what he was all about. But for John himself, this scene at the Jordan uh, would prove absolutely pivotal. So if you've got your Bible, you turn over with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. Uh, where we read in the Gospel of John this very same scene, uh, but we read a little more. And this is what we read at John 1, 29 of this very same scene. The next day, he, that's John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen, says John, and have borne witness that this is uh, the Son of God. So this scene is what happens here is going to prove pivotal uh, for John the baptizer to know that this is the one who is the one mightier than he who is going to baptize, uh, not simply externally with water, but here comes one who has power to cleanse within by the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. As Jesus approaches for baptism, John knows enough about Jesus. At this point already, his, his, his second cousin, John knows enough that something seems strange. John would have prevented him. He would have stopped him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? This would be like, you know, this would be my, like my mechanic, Mr. Scrimma, coming to me to fix his car. This would be like your dentist coming to you and saying, can you please clean my teeth? No, I, what? I'm not, I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. So it's a shocking candidate for baptism. There's also a, a puzzling reason for baptism. I mean, it's strange enough that Jesus comes for a baptism. Remember, this is a baptism of repentance. Stranger still, his expressed reason for baptism. This is what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, or this time, for thus it is fitting or it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus clears away John's objection. He says, let us do this now. It's fitting. It's appropriate. And by doing this, uh, we serve, says Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, here's the puzzling thing. Everywhere in the Gospels, we are told that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what this baptism is all about. Cleansing for the forgiveness of sin. We also know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus, who was like us in every way except for sin. So if Jesus, who had no sin, comes to receive baptism from John, whose baptism is all about repentance for the forgiveness of sin, why is Jesus looking to be baptized? This is... The question, um, and just imagine the scene here. How does this work? The Lamb of God, Jesus comes, and here's all these other folks, and, and Pharisees and Sadducees were there, and, and there's Jesus. Is he among them? Is he off to the side? Does he raise his hand? Does he call out to John? I need to be baptized. We don't know how exactly this happens, but however it happens, John wants to stop him. He would have prevented him. That means he kept on saying, no, 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 no. John is shocked. How could one so holy as Jesus need baptism? Now, John here knows, of course, that he is the inferior one in this relationship. And if anyone needs to be cleansed, it's John who needs Jesus, not Jesus who needs John. 
And uh, clearly John here is contrasted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Who had no sense of any kind of need of true cleansing at all. But John knows he's the needy one. John's the needy one. Uh, not, Not Jesus. Paul will clear this up for us also in uh, in Acts 17, when he's speaking to the Athenians and he's talking to them about all their, their gods that they, they worship and they offer sacrifices to. And, uh, and, and Paul says to them, listen, let me tell you about the God who created the world. He, he doesn't need any of these temples made with hands. And in fact, he doesn't, he doesn't need anything from us. In fact, uh, he is the one who gives us everything, life and health and, and everything else. We are the needy ones. And John knew that. Uh, you see. So often we think we can put God in our debt. We do so much for Him. This is what we talked about at our men's fellowship on, on Friday night. Sometimes we think that somehow God is obligated to us uh, because we've done so much for Him. Uh, whereas the Bible says even if we've done all that God required, we could only always say we've only done our duty. But of course, we've never done our duty. <laughs> and, we, and we fail in that. Well, John knew that. John's the needy one, not Jesus. So why? Well, this has puzzled um, actually the church forever. Um, a lot of different thoughts have been given on it. Um, priests in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, uh, before they came to serve the Lord, they would be washed, they would be cleansed at age 30 uh, before they would serve the Lord as priests. That would change later to twenty-five, twenty. so it doesn't really... Uh, obedience to God's commands uh, through John. Uh, this makes sense that Jesus uh, is simply saying, uh, you know, John is calling all devout Jews to come to him to receive this baptism, and Jesus, uh, as a devout Jew, comes uh, in obedience. Uh, maybe some say this is an anticipation of Jesus' own death. Uh, baptism in the Scripture is given at times as a sign of our death to sin, and maybe this is a, a sign pointing forward that one day Jesus, in fact, would die in, the, in, in our place uh, for our sin so that we might be righteous in, in Him. Uh, clearly, we already went, read that this would be a means by which John the baptizer would be assured of, his, uh, full, um, uh, of Jesus' full identity. So what happens here? Uh, by Jesus coming for baptism, the Holy Spirit descending, John knows Jesus is the one. And those are, all, those are all true. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor, 10th Presbyterian. I think he has a helpful way to help us. The best way, said Boyce, to understand Jesus' words is by understanding the primary significance of baptism, which is not immersion or sprinkling. That is only to do with the mode or form of baptism, but the idea of identification. In Christian baptism, we are identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection so that his death becomes our death, and his resurrection our resurrection, says Boyce. In Jesus' baptism by John, Jesus identified himself with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior and substitute for us. This, says Boyce, was the beginning of what theologians call Christ's active obedience. His passive obedience was his submitting to death on the cross in our place. His active obedience was his perfect obedience to all God's commandments and decrees in 
our place. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Jesus has no sins from which He needs to be cleansed. But we read in the Gospel that Jesus would take sinners' place at the cross. And here, as He begins His public ministry, uh, He identifies with those sinners for whom He would die. And He does that willingly. And isn't it amazing that, you know, as Jesus begins his public ministry, then Jesus came. I mean, the first thing that Jesus does is comes and submits himself to this baptism, which is for repentance, for, for the forgiveness of sin. He, the first thing he does is, is humble himself. He doesn't first come uh, to, to, and, and uh, make a powerful display that he's the king. The first thing we read in, gospel, in the Gospel of Matthew of the public ministry of Jesus is Jesus humbling himself and identifying himself with sinners and receiving baptism for the forgiveness of sin, you see. Isaiah 53.6 will say, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 will say, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness uh, of God. Or in First Peter, which we will come to in our, in our morning studies, Peter writes this, First Peter uh, 2, uh, verse 24, in a wonderful way, wonderful testimony to the Lord's work. He writes this about Jesus. He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So consider, friends, here at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the humility of Jesus coming to John for baptism. And then in Philippians 2, the Bible will say, well, you, the same mind that's in Jesus needs to be in you, right? Who, who humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and here we find in, in Matthew, receives a baptism that's meant for sinners. Because he identifies with his people, you see, who are sinners. And he will take their place. We like to identify, of course, with not sinners, but with winners. Uh, <laughs> right? Um, we like to identify with famous people. And we want to say, yeah, we know them. Yeah, I heard of them. We want to stand with them, you know, those in places of honor and authority. Jesus identifies, the Bible says, with sinners and stands with them. He will fulfill all righteousness for them. He will live, die, and rise for them so that all who believe in Him, all those who are united to Him by faith, His obedience is our obedience. His death is our death. And His resurrection is our resurrection. So it's a puzzling reason, but Jesus here right at the beginning identifies with sinners. He will live, die, rise in the place of sinners, and so he receives baptism for the forgiveness of sin. Not his sin, but for the sin of his people. Well, uh, we have a puzzling response, and of course we also have an awesome testimony at his baptism. Notice what the Bible says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately... He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It means to abide on him. That is, it doesn't descend and leave. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, first note, of course, the main concern here is not the mode of baptism. Uh, Some people look at this passage and say, okay, let's talk about baptism. Uh, What's the mode of baptism? Clearly, Jesus was immersed in the Jordan. The Bible doesn't say that. doesn't say he was sprinkled. doesn't say he had water poured uh, over his head as he stood in the Jordan River. We assume he came up. uh, It's a river. Would have came up the bank. The Bible doesn't say how he was baptized because, of course, that's not the point. Why is this awesome? Well, consider, first of all, the presence of the Trinity here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son receives baptism. And God the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. The entire Godhead is involved in this scene. I don't know about you, but for me, I found that the Trinity cannot so much be explained uh, as witnessed in the Bible. You know, we can talk about the Trinity and, uh, you know, one God, three persons, and so forth, but we're always left with, I can't understand this. (laughs) And that's okay, because the Trinity cannot be so much explained as witnessed in the Bible. Kind of like, think about this, kind of like a sunrise at, at the Grand Canyon. I've never been to the Grand Canyon for a sunrise. I would love to be there. You ever been there? The Grand Canyon Center. Could you explain that to me, please? Say, well, it was beautiful. Oh, okay. No, I don't think you could explain sunrise at the Grand Canyon. Uh, But when you see it, oh boy, you you know it for what it is. In the history of the church, there was a heresy named modalism, of which Sabellianism was one form. The idea here in the history of the church with this heresy is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three distinct persons, but that they're three different modes of existence. That is, that God appears in different ways over time in the Bible, but he's only one. God appears at one time as Father. Maybe he'll appear as the Son. Maybe at other times he'll appear as the Spirit. But here, friends, all three persons of the Trinity at once. J.C. Ryle has this wonderful phrase. He says this, It was the whole Trinity which at the beginning of creation said... Let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, says Ryle, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. That's J.C. Ryle. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 as he's praying uh, for the church. It goes like this, Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so even as Paul prays uh, for the church, he prays for the work of the Father and the Spirit uh, and the Son. So first of all, here we have the awesome presence of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit uh, at this baptism of Jesus. But we also have an awesome sign. The Bible says uh, that the heavens uh, were opened. Uh, Behold, as Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens were opened to him. This happens elsewhere in Scripture. 
The prophet Ezekiel, as he begins his visions, the Bible says the heavens were opened and Ezekiel's given a vision. It happens when Stephen, the deacon, is martyred for his faith and the Bible says the heavens were opened and he saw Jesus, the right hand of the Father, in all his glory. It happens in the book of Revelation when... uh, when John sees the heavens opened in Revelation uh, chapter 4, and he sees, he sees glorious things. But here the heavens are opened, and what is seen? Well, the Bible says the descent of the Holy Spirit like a dove. Like a dove, because the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit has no body. And like a dove... Well, we're not told exactly why like a dove, only that elsewhere in Scripture, a dove is symbolic of purity and gentleness and graciousness and also, of course, of of sacrifice. Doves were offered by the poor as sacrifice, you see. And coming to rest on Him, uh, coming to rest on Jesus, to abide on him. You'll remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah uh, 61, verse 1. In fact, words spoken of by the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Listen to Bible commentator William Hendrickson. Here comes the Holy Spirit to rest on Jesus. Thus, said Hendrickson, equipped and qualified, Jesus was able to carry out the very difficult task which the Father had given him to do. To save us from sin, he himself needed to be pure, to endure torment, to pardon our iniquities, and to exercise patience with our weaknesses. He needed gentleness, meekness, and graciousness, the Spirit now rested upon him abidingly, fully qualifying him for his most difficult, yet also most glorious task. And this is what he says. It should be constantly borne in mind that though Christ's divine nature was not in need of and was in fact incapable of being strengthened, you can't strengthen the second person of the Trinity, his divine nature, the same was not true with respect to his human nature. This could be and needed to be strengthened. You see, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus has to face the cross, the Bible says, this ever puzzle you? The Bible says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. You say, wait a minute. How could Jesus (laughs) need to be strengthened? Well, because he was both fully God and fully man. And in his human nature, he needed to be strengthened as as he sensed the full wrath of God against the sin of his people was coming upon him. Oh, he needed to be strengthened. An angel came. Remember Jesus, the 12-year-old boy in Luke 2, 52, the Bible says he grew in wisdom and in stature 
before God and before men. The divine second person of the Trinity doesn't need to grow in wisdom. But in his human nature, fully like us, oh, he grew in wisdom and in stature. And here's the thing, as man, as man, as we, he was equipped for his task by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him. That is, he is now equipped fully for the task that his Father is sending him to do. And for all that were there, this was an awesome sign of his calling. One more thing. There's also, of course, awesome testimony because the Father speaks. Don't forget the behold, verse 17. And behold, take note of this. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now remember, we've already heard the voice of earth. That was John. Uh, There's one coming, mightier than I. But this is the voice now from heaven. And any Jew who knew their Old Testament would recognize these words as bringing to mind two passages of Scripture, one from Psalm 2 and the other from Isaiah 42. Psalm 2 speaks uh, about how uh, God has installed His King on Zion, His holy hill. Uh, This is my Son. He is the King of Psalm 72. This is now the Father who speaks. Jesus is the King. He is the Son of God. The nations, Psalm 2 says, are His heritage. That's what's said of this beloved Son. The nations belong to Him. This is what the voice from heaven is saying. And from Isaiah 42, with whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42 is talking about the servant of Isaiah. You'll know the servant who in Isaiah 53 is prophesied that he will suffer in the place of his people. That is the one in whom the Father takes delight. So here's the thing. When the Father speaks from heaven, he says two things. This is the king. Ah, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. These things are said of the king and they are said of the suffering servant who will give his life for the sake of his people. That's That's no ordinary king. And so we have the voice from earth, John. We have the voice from heaven saying this is the son of God. This is the servant. This is the Messiah. He is the king who will bear the iniquity of his people. Uh, This is Jesus. And then, of course, later in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to hear this voice from heaven one more time when Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah. And this is what we hear from heaven. He was still speaking, that is, Peter was speaking in Matthew 17, 5. When, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And of course, in the letter of John, 1 John 5, John will tell us that everybody who is a Christian, everybody who knows Jesus, 
has, uh, has a testimony. And this is what 1 John 5 says. If we receive the testimony of men, that is what men say, the testimony of God is greater. For this is, says John, the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever, says John, does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this, says John, is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is important. This is awesome testimony from heaven, from the Father himself. Uh, we see the, the side of the, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, descending. We see the presence of the Trinity. But we have the very, the Bible says we have, Matthew says, the very voice of the Father, this is his Son. This is the King. This is the one who will suffer as my faithful servant in the place of sinners. This is the one. And this is my, says the Father from heaven, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The love of the Father for the Son, friends, is eternal. It's infinite. It's deep. Oh, the Father's well pleased, delighted in Jesus as the King, as the servant, as the one who will take the place of sinners. And of course, the question is, are you? This morning we, we heard how, uh, you know, as Jesus is raised from the dead, the Father gave him glory, exalted him. And so anyone who knows the Father, anyone who knows Christ, likewise exalts him in our words, in our life, in all, that we, in all that we do. And here we find the Bible saying, a voice from heaven, this is Jesus, this is my son, this is the king, this is the suffering servant. This is your Savior. I, he's my beloved. And I'm well pleased in Him. And you and I have to ask ourselves, are we in such a great Savior who the first act of His ministry is not to assert His power and authority, but which is to humble Himself and identify Himself with sinners like you and I, you see. And of course, the Bible says this, wonder of wonders, as Jesus prays in John 17. Remember what Jesus prayed? He said, even as the, uh, even as the Father has loved me, he prays, I pray for the church uh, that they would know that the Father has loved them even as he has loved me, you see. So just as the Father delights in, is well pleased in Jesus, for all those who are in Jesus, for all those who have faith in Jesus, who all those are united to Jesus as adopted sons and daughters through faith in him, we hear that very same word. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And that's what Jesus prays for the church, that we would know that, that even as the father loves the son, oh, so he loves his people. And so Jesus came, humbled himself. Holy Spirit descends and the Father from heaven says, this is my son. Well, I wonder, I wonder how 
people would receive the arrival of the Son. Well, the very first thing that happens in the Gospel of Matthew is that this beloved Son goes out to wage war against the evil one, because in the very next chapter of Matthew, Jesus is led out into the wilderness to face the same foe uh, that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. So as he takes on this ministry, the first place he goes is to defeat the one uh, who holds the power of sin and death. And so we will look at that next time. So let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that as Jesus comes, Lord, we see him coming humbly. We see John shocked at what Jesus is doing. Why would Jesus come to the repentance, to the baptism for repentance, for the baptism for forgiveness? He has no sin. Oh, and Lord, and in this uh, wonder and in this shock lies the, the joy and the, the amazement of the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, identifies with sinners like us and will take our sin upon himself all the way to the cross, that he would put that sin to death, that he would rise again, uh, so that sin would no longer hold us and that we would be able, by your Spirit, to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that the Lord Jesus faithfully obeys we thank you that the Lord Jesus faithfully walks in your ways. And we thank you that all that the Lord Jesus does and is becomes ours through faith in him. And so grant us that faith, we pray, this day, that as we go forth into this new week, we would know uh, that even as the Father spoke from heaven, that this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, that Jesus himself prayed, that we as believers who have faith in Jesus Christ would know that we are loved by the Father with that very same love because we are united to his Son by faith. Help us, Lord, then, to know that love, even as we go out to serve you in this week to come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.